she had been playing with the worship band for a number of months in her church, and one Sunday, the uh, main band leader was out of town, and so um, seeing the absence, she stepped up at the beginning of worship and said, why don't you all rise and let's worship our God? And she didn't think anything of it. She was 19 years old until later that week she got a phone call from one of the elders. The fact that we do many meetings with the elders who were concerned that by telling the men of the church to stand and worship God, she had exercised authority over them, thereby rejecting both her biblical womanhood and their biblical manhood, and it would become a disciplinary case that ended with her walking away not only from that church, but from the church broadly. It's hard to think that these kinds of things actually happen, but they, they do in more subtle ways. Uh, you know, I was uh, listening to Christianity Today's Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast about the megachurch that blew up in, in, in well, in two ways, in um, Seattle, both blew up by becoming a megachurch and then blew apart because of the sense of its leadership. Um, I heard women there, sisters in Christ, talking about being shamed for having a job outside the home, women being shamed for not having enough children, uh, defining femininity with very distinct roles for men and women in which they as women were viewed primarily as sex objects, they felt, either, either as a means to their husband's sexual release and fulfillment, or negatively as a threat to the purity of other men. They described marriage being defined primarily as being all about authority and submission. They, while they remember physical abuse being dealt with very forcefully, and some felt very supported in that, nevertheless, many of them said they went to counseling for marriage troubles, and they were told that the basic issue is that they need to submit more to their husbands. The question being, they were told whether they were going to be dominated by a good man or by a bad man. A woman said that her sense in the church was that as a woman, her need was to recede. It can be hard being a girl raised in conservative Christian spaces, particularly in spaces that aren't all that theologically different from, from our own. This morning, I am starting a new sermon series on leading women of the Bible, and it's a purposeful double entendre, because on the one hand, it's sort of like Hollywood's leading ladies, this is the Bible's leading ladies, but it's also a double entendre because we're gonna look at the many ways that God gifts and calls women to provide leadership in various spheres. Um, now, I'll say right up front, this is not a sermon series that is designed to answer the question of ordination. Um, that's more than a seven or eight part series could do. Um, this is not a sermon series about womanhood or about marriage. It is about some of the women leaders that God has shown us to inspire us. And I wanna note at the outset because some of you, every time I say leader, you will see here ordination. And those are different categories. And I don't want some of you either to think, finally, Greg's going to smash the patriarchy and then get disappointed. Or think, oh, no, he's going to ruin the church. And then uh, realize that, well, maybe it's not that bad. 
Um, you know, it's so when I say leader, don't hear ordained office, because those are different. And please don't listen to these sermons thinking, I wonder what Greg is really saying, because I'm going to be more nuanced than ever in this sermon series. I have spent more time working on it. I mean, just 1 Timothy 2 has been hundreds of hours. I'm not joking, maybe just slightly. Uh, it's just, you know, please don't ask the question, where is Greg really leading us? I'm just trying to present the Bible. Um, because we as a church have diverse perspectives on a lot of things, including the question of ordaining women to the office of elder. And so I believe our diversity is one of our strengths. And, you know, we're going to look at some of the key texts this fall. Uh, next year, we're going to, after the first of the year, start listening to where the congregation is. You know, just kind of hear people out. What do you, where, and the goal is to figure out where there's consensus. Not where 51% are, but where there's consensus, because we're a family. We're not the United States. We don't settle elections by 50.0001% or less than that with, a, with, a, with an electoral college. You know, we, we act as a family, and so we look for consensus, and where do we have consensus, and where do we not yet have consensus, and, and we act accordingly, always being sensitive to love those with whom we might disagree or see things differently. What I do hope these sermons will help us do is first and foremost gain a vision for how a woman who fears God can change the world. Secondly, to cast a positive vision for girls growing up in this church of how God can use them. And thirdly, to help us become familiar with questions surrounding ordination to office and to help us reject very clearly unbiblical conclusions that either side of the question have sometimes come to, and I hope we can understand why believers in the same pew might come to different conclusions than you or I myself might come to, even though we're looking at the same text and we're all trying to submit to whatever God says. And above all, my prayer is that we can love each other as a church family and take a discussion at the pace it leads and wait for consensus and love each other all the way through from beginning to end. But because we're looking at leading women of the Bible, we're going to start where the Bible starts, in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. We're going to read in Genesis 1, beginning in verse 26, and then we're going to jump ahead to chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. This is the word of God before the fall, before sin, before all the injury that we've done to each other ever was injected into the world by our choice. This is the word of God. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over the livestock and over all the earth and over all the creatures that move on the ground. And so God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them both, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And then God said, I give you both, it's implied, every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, 
They will be yours for food and all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food and it was so. God saw all the he had made and it was very good and there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Then in chapter 2, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man, that's the male, to be alone. I will make him a corresponding helper or deliverer. We'll explain that word. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air, and he brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, the beasts of the field, but for Adam, no suitable corresponding helper or deliverer was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. While he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. And the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. What do we see here? first point we can draw from this is we see the equality of men and women as image bearers of God within his design. Men and women equally bear his image. God says, you know, let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and he created them, male and female, he created them, equally bearing God's image. And if women and men equally bear God's image, then there are certain things we have to reject. First, we have to reject the kind of male chauvinism that will tend to patronize, disparage, or otherwise denigrate women in the belief that they are inferior. It's a lie of the devil. We also have to reject the kind of female chauvinism that will patronize, disparage, or otherwise denigrate men in the belief that they are inferior. Because that, too, goes against what God says here. Because here we see men and women equally bearing God's image, equal in his design, and also equally ruling over creation. We read that God blessed them and said to them both, you all be fruitful. You know, there's, there's, Hebrew is more like Southern English. Northern English, you have this word you, and you never know what you means. And the Bible was always translated in Northern English. I don't really know why that is, obviously some kind of cultural bias because southern english is actually more accurate because southern english can actually distinguish between you do this and you all do this or y'all i was from virginia it was you all um and what god is saying to them both you all be fruitful and increase in number fill the earth and subdue it and you all rule over the fish of the sea and the birds and the air and the creatures that move on the ground. There's no faithful way to interpret this text without concluding that God creates women to lead the world the same as men. Human beings were made to take charge. Human beings were made to take responsibility. And women are human beings 
equally bearing God's image and equally given the charge, God said to them both, rule. And we see examples of this in the Bible. There are obviously small ways in which it happens when you you plant a garden and nurse it. You're taking leadership and ruling over the creation. Uh, You know, you make a, a really nice, you know, filet mignon. You're taking leadership over creation. Uh, you know, but there are some very prominent examples in the Bible, like like Riley read from the Gospel of Luke, the three women who are named. You know, uh, the the Gospel according to Luke names fifteen of Jesus's core followers, twelve apostles, one of whom betrayed Jesus, and three women uh, who are named who are named because they would have, by the time the Gospel of Luke was written, they would have been names that everybody knew because they were prominent women in the church. Um, you know, in fact, they were funding Jesus' ministry through their own means. They were well-off women. Uh, and we read also about the Hebrew midwives in, um, in Exodus, where when the Pharaoh of Egypt told them to kill all the boy Jewish baby boys, uh, they, they lied through their teeth and came up with a crazy story, but they took the initiative to make sure that God's will was done. Uh, you see, um, Abigail, who took leadership of her family when her husband, whose name literally meant fool, failed to lead. And she saved her family's life and kept King David from doing something wicked that he would have regretted and that God would have been displeased with. You see Deborah, both a, a, a prophet and the judge of all Israel. You see Huldah, another prophet in the Old Testament. You have the Proverbs 31 wife, who we always translate as the wife of noble character, but the literal Hebrew says, the mighty woman different from a wife of noble character. Uh, We have Anna in the New Testament, a prophetess. We see Philip's daughters are prophets in the New Testament. You see Phoebe was a deaconess in Romans 16. You see Junia, who who on the surface appears to be named an apostle in in the same chapter. And, And God said to them both, rule, men and women, equally bearing God's image and equally ruling over creation. We see the equality here of men and women. Indeed, in this passage, the woman is described as the man's deliverer, or a uh, uh, savior's too strong a word, but, uh, you know, he says, you know, it's not good, God says, for the man to be alone. This is not the first thing condemned in the Bible, and this is before the fall and before sin, was being alone. And so I'll make a corresponding helper or deliverer, and then Adam names the animals, and none of Adam's that, and then he creates the woman, and they were naked, and they felt no shame. Uh, The language used here, this corresponding helper, the Hebrew is etzer, kenegdo. Etzer, the Hebrew term term etzer is usually translated helper, but that doesn't quite capture the image that's being pictured here. When we think helper, we might picture a personal assistant or a housemaid or a low-level lackey working in the mailroom who does the menial tasks that we don't want to do. That's a helper. Or maybe when we hear, we've got a slide here, maybe when we hear helper, um, can we get that first picture? We imagine the glove. Does anybody remember the jingle that went with this? Yeah. Hamburger helper helped her hamburger help her make a great deal, which is ironic because I ate a lot of hamburger helper in grad school, uh, you know, um, but uh, they don't use that one anymore, you know, it, but when we think of helper, that's enough, we got the glove, 
Um, don't think of the glove. Don't think of the box. Don't think of the maid. Don't think of the personal assistant. That's not how the term is ever used in the Hebrew Bible. So what image should we have? The Hebrew term etzer denotes a helper without any concept of inferiority. In fact, it's just the opposite. Uh, commentators rightly note that God is called the etzer of Israel, the helper of Israel in Exodus 18, the etzer of Israel in Deuteronomy 33, the etzer of, of Israel in countless psalms. 16 of the 19 uses of this word outside of this passage refer to God as the helper. And in that context, in every single instance, it means deliverer. Indeed, in every passage where it's used, the imagery is military in nature. The helper is, is one of military deliverance. The other three times the term is used where it's not used of God, it's used of nations that Israel turns to for military support and intervention when they're facing failure. It's a helper in the sense of a deliverer, or perhaps one might say a lifesaver. And many of you married men can look at your wife and realize that God gave you a lifesaver, that God gave you a deliverer, lowercase d. That's not, you know, the term, that's how the term is always used in the Bible. The picture of Israel is of Israel being attacked and overpowered and they're weak and then the Lord himself comes in shining armor, cresting the hill and vanquishes the enemies. Only here it's Adam in his aloneness coming to a point of hopeless despair with no salvation, and then, and then the woman crests the hill, the knight in shining armor, to deliver him. And they were naked, and they felt no shame. It's a beautiful picture of a deliverer, a lifesaver. And that means that Christian marriage is a partnership of equals. The focus here is on their companionship, their mutuality. It is the man's being alone that is being addressed. It's not that he didn't have anybody to control or to dominate. And so God gave him somebody to control and dominate. It's, it's a mutuality and a companionship and focused on the incredible ability the wife brings to the man who would otherwise not have that ability. It's not good for the man to be alone. I will provide for him. And the focus is here on that. It's a partnership of equals because men and women are equal in God's design. Now, that's what we see. Notice some things that we do not see here. What we do not see is a marriage relationship that is structured primarily as an authority relationship. The main image is not here one of male headship. I'll get more on that later. Um, and that makes sense because in the gospel, Jesus says it's the rulers of the Gentiles that lord it over them or that lead them from above, uh, that exercise authority over them. But not so with you. Whoever wants to be great must become a servant because the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Uh, biblical marriage, therefore, is not fighting over the crown. It's fighting over the towel to see who gets to go to the bottom to wash each other's feet. It's not, you know, a pyramid seeing who's on top and who's on the bottom of the pyramid making all the decisions. It's an inverted pyramid asking who gets to be on the bottom, washing the feet and being the bottom servant and taking the initiative and leadership in that role. We don't see very clearly specified roles for men and women. At this point, we don't see a division of labor between the executive and the help. 
Uh, we also don't see interchangeability. Men and women, biological males, biological females, made by God, equal, but not necessarily interchangeable. They are different. They are distinct. Now, can you then, therefore, pour all sorts of meaning into that with a nice long list of what men do and what women do? You can do that, but it's not in the Bible. But there's more than merely a biological or sexual difference. The language here is that the wife or the woman is an etzer kenigdo. The etzer is the helper, deliverer, lifesaver. And the kenigdo means, it means to be a mirror image. It means to be face-to-face. It means to be complementary, though that, that, that can be a loaded language for some, or corresponding um, according to his complement. Uh, the language, the basic meaning of it is if you look at yourself in a mirror and you raise your right hand, which hand does the mirror raise? The other one, because it's a mirror image. It's like the yin and the yang of the South Korean flag, equal but opposite. Um, when you're face-to-face with somebody, if you, if you both raise your right hand, you're raising different hands. One's on this side, the other's on this side. Um, and every time I talk about the yin and the yang, somebody always pulls me aside and says, I wouldn't use that illustration if I were you. Look at the flag. I'm not endorsing some kind of religious heresy. I'm just saying it's a good picture. Everybody knows it. And it has that image of equality, but not necessarily interchangeability. And so the focus here is on equality, but what we don't see is a highly, uh, 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 a highly structured, authority-based relationship. We also don't see equality meaning interchangeability, and that may be, mean that there are going to be some things in the Bible that God says, I want a woman to do this. Or, as in the Aaronic priesthood in the Old Testament, God wanted just one family, the sons of Aaron, to do it, and only the sons, only the males, and he had his purpose for doing that. And when I look at what their job was, being covered in blood and feces and guts all day and night, covered around nasty smoke, I am glad I was not a son of Aaron. But we can't rule out the possibility up front that God might have thoughts about that. Um, Now, question. Might there be some kind of male headship in the family even before the fall? And I will just very quickly say yes and no, depending on what you mean. Um, In Ephesians 5, St. Paul says the husband is the head of the wife. Um, However, in that context, he's saying that in a context in which husband and wife are mutually submitting to one another, and in which the husband's leadership involves mainly uh, giving up of himself and dying for the sake of his bride. I'm going to give you some bad examples of what headship means to some people. This is, first one is from the website on biblical gender, ro- gender roles. If you Google biblical gender roles, it will be one of the very first. He writes, the husband-wife relationship is the only human authority relationship where God commands the one under authority to submit to the other as unto the Lord, quoting Ephesians 5. Wives are commanded to submit to their husbands in everything, Ephesians 5. The only exception is the woman submitting to her husband in everything is if he asks her to disobey God's law. That's what they say. And yet, as I mentioned, that instruction in Ephesians 5 is fleshing out what it looks like for a married couple to, quote, from Ephesians 5, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Um, it's not so much about who makes all the decisions. 
there's a mutuality in biblical marriage. There's a self-giving love in which both husband and wife are giving of themselves to the other, sacrificing their own wants and longings and dreams for the other in order that what would be known so much in their marriage is not the husband or the wife, but the love. Another bad example, same website on biblical gender roles. In marriage, God has not only placed husbands in authority over their wives, but he has also given them ownership of their wives. The Hebrew word for marriage in the Old Testament is literally to be owned, as in a woman coming to be owned by a man. When a man married a woman, he became her owner, the quotes are original, and she became owned by him. But again, this is selective reading of the Bible. It misrepresents the Bible's teaching. Is there ownership in marriage? Absolutely. The Bible explains it very clearly in words that require no explanation in 1 Corinthians 7, when St. Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, inerrantly, infallibly, and perspicaciously, meaning clearly, writes, the wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. Any covenant relationship is a mutual owning, even between God's people and Jesus, in which he owns us as his people, and we own him as our God and Savior. Um, you know, much of what you read online is simply a characterization of what the Bible says. And if you selectively tell half of the story, you're going to misrepresent that story. Does a husband have a special responsibility as spiritual leader to lead a Christian family to Jesus? Yes. Can you then pour an entire concept and philosophy down into that? Not necessarily. Um, how this plays out, I like to think of it, you know, if you think of marriage relationship and a husband being a spiritual leader and you put that in the context of the, you know, um, you know, office cubicle job in Earth City and you say the husband is therefore the manager and the wife is therefore the secretary or the data entry clerk then you're going to end up with a very unhealthy marriage that is abusive almost by design. If you think leadership and you think salsa dancing or ballroom dancing, then you're going to get the idea that this isn't about who makes all the decisions. This is about what it looks like for two people to have the time of their lives dancing across the dance floor. You know, in, in, in ballroom dancing, you know, the, the man has to lead and the woman has to follow. But it's not that the man makes the decisions and the woman is always submitting to the man's decisions and doing what he says. That's not the picture. The man leads by taking her, making her look amazingly beautiful, prancing across the floor the entire time she is walking backwards, not seeing where she's going. And as the one leading, he is protecting her from running into a column or a wall or into another dancer. And he is doing that in order to make her look beautiful so that she can fly through the sky like a gazelle jumping over the Serengeti. And everybody's going to think she's beautiful and he's going to feel strong. And they're going to have the time of their lives. But it takes somebody who knows the lead and somebody who knows how to follow and who's not thinking of that primarily as an authority relationship but more as spiritual leadership to Jesus in which a husband presents his wife before God without fault, uh, with great joy. Uh, we see the equality, but we see that that does not necessarily mean interchangeability. That there's something else we also don't yet see in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. We do not yet see how sin has damaged this partnership of equals, and how it's therefore ripe for abuse at every level.
Some of you have firsthand experience of a spouse who betrayed you, who abandoned you, who left you. Some of you have experience of a spouse who abused you, who maligned you, who ridiculed you, who cut you down in front of other people, making you feel so small and worthless. Some of you have seen these things firsthand in yourself, and you have regrets of things you did to your spouse, husband or wife, things you said, attitudes you had, things of which you've had to repent, and damage that you may never be able to fully repair. In Genesis 1 and 2, we don't yet see how sin has tainted and damaged all of this. And our only experience of relationships this side of the fall is of sinful, damaged relationships in which we nevertheless, at best, see grace and glory breaking in. God has called us to work against the effects of the fall, to strive to love one another, men and women loving each other inside and outside of marriage and elevating each other, not tearing each other down. And so how is it possible in the face of such damage as we actually experience in this life? Friends, it's possible because the Bible says that God is our true Isaiah. God is our true helper. He is our deliverer. He is our life saver. Deuteronomy 33, there is no one like the God of Jeshurun who rides on the heavens to help you as your deliverer, as your helper. When we have to confront our own selfishness, and the closer you draw to somebody, the more you're going to have to confront that. When we have to confront our own fears and our own insecurity, we have to look at our own pride and we have to name it. We have to have confidence that God already sees us. He's not surprised. He chose you anyway. He washed you anyway. He saved you anyway. And he's called you into this relationship anyway so that you can actively give grace and gospel to others. And God can give it to you. And Lord willing, maybe even they can give it to you. Because if you belong to Jesus by faith, you are already part of Christ's bride, his betrothed, his church. You are already now bone of God's bone and flesh of Christ's flesh. You have the security of being bound eternally in covenant to God that he is already your God and you are already his people. And with God, there is no divorce. You have the security of knowing that God is your deliverer, your lifesaver, your helper, the Ezer of Israel. And if God is our Ezer, then men and women can elevate each other and honor each other, and not just within marriage, but within all the life of the church and beyond. Think of how Jesus as a man was known to truly love women in a society that denigrated women. Jesus elevated them. He broke down walls to speak with women. He received their support and help he, he developed their wisdom as leaders. He, he never married, but he lived a life loving God and humanity and quite conspicuously elevating the women around him, treating them like the fallen queens of creation that they are as co-rulers of the earth, as those bruised and broken by the fall being helped back up onto her throne as a repentant image bearer of God alongside her brothers who are in the same place knowing that God has your back, that he's our Azair, our helper, our deliverer. It can free you up to risk loving, even if you might get hurt. If Jesus is washing your feet, you don't have to worry about your own feet. You can focus on washing the feet of the men and women that God has placed around you, redeemed by Jesus, 
co-regents over creation. And remember the length to which God would go to be our heir. That God himself became incarnate in Jesus. On the cross, he bore our sins so that we'll never bear them. And Jesus now intercedes for us before the Father night and day as our betrothed. And that spirit of self-sacrificial leadership would compel many women and men alike to sacrifice everything to follow Jesus. Betty Green was a young woman when a U.S. general in the 1940s pointed at her in disgust and said, what are they bringing a girl in to do a man's work? It was the Second World War and Betty was flying military aircraft for the U.S. military as a member of the Women Air Force Service Pilots, or WASP. These women pilots would ferry fighters and bombers to various fronts uh, it, it, so that the male pilots could just focus on active combat fight flights. We have a picture of Betty. Um, it was a female WASP pilot who had first witnessed the Japanese Air Force converging on Pearl Harbor in 1941 when U.S. military pilots at first were hesitant to fly a very complicated and massive plane like the B-29 Super Fortress. It was WASP pilots like Betty who ferried the new bombers to their necessary locations. You can almost imagine, you know, this massive intimidating bomber landing at your forward operating base and you're thinking, oh gosh, I am not going to fly that thing. It's big, it's difficult, it's complicated. And then the hatchway opens up and down the plank come, you know, seven WASP pilots in all 1940s curls and lipstick. Hey boys, here are your planes. Hope you like it. We had fun. The male pilots would be so embarrassed after that, they would never complain. Um, you can almost picture that U.S. general pointing at Betty in disgust, saying, what are they bringing a girl in to do a man's work? It was Betty who flew very hazardous high-altitude test flights into the stratosphere, where the temperature drops to 55 degrees below zero, requiring special suits and full oxygen masks. It was an incredibly dangerous job. It was WASP women pilots during the war who first test flew experimental rocket-propelled aircraft and the very first experimental jet aircraft. It was WASP women who piloted the planes that towed aerial targets while testing and training anti-aircraft weapons. They literally signed up to fly the target for target practice and get shot at. 38 WASP pilots died in service to the war effort. And Betty was a follower of Jesus. She was not afraid, therefore, to put her life at risk for a worthy cause. She grew up in Seattle. She had learned to fly as a teenager before the war. She had witnessed Car uh, Charles Lindbergh fly. In 1927, he became the first to accomplish a nonstop transatlantic flight. And she greatly admired Amelia Earhart, who five years later became the first woman to do the same. Eight months before the end of the World War II, the military, which at that point had a glut of male pilots, disbanded the WASP program. The pilots offered to continue to work for $1 a year, but their offer was declined. The U.S. Army no longer needed women doing dangerous work that men could do. Jesus, however, had other ideas, and so did Betty Green. 
During the war, Betty had become deeply aware of the great need that mission stations around the world had for logistical support, carrying urgently needed supplies and medicines to remote and inaccessible locations, the, the need to evacuate people for medical care, the need to quickly transport men and women to locations at great distance. She wrote an article for a Christian magazine where speaking of the needs of the missionaries, she said, I am eagerly awaiting the time when God will use my flying to take the glorious gospel of our blessed God to those who are without Jesus Christ. A lot of other mission-minded pilots took note. As the wasp was dissolved, Betty helped found the Christian Airmen's Missionary Fellowship. And ironically given its name, the very first uh, uh, airman that the Christian Airman's Missionary Fellowship uh, sent into the air was an air woman. It was Betty. The first flight was hers on February 23rd, age 25. She took the first flight in the four-season cabin Waco biplane and after a little hiccup arrived safely at a remote Mexican jungle village. The organization was later renamed Mission Aviation Fellowship. As Anglican Reverend Canon J. John describes her work, he writes, Betty was to work with Mission Aviation Fellowship as a bush pilot for 16 years, based successively in Mexico, Peru, Nigeria, Sudan, and New Guinea. She flew in some of the world's remotest areas, over bleak deserts, unmapped rainforest, and treacherous mountain ranges. She flew missionaries and their families. She flew doctors and patients, aid workers, as well as transporting vital medicines and equipment. Her flying record was astonishing. She flew regularly from 12 countries, landed in some 20 more, and accumulated 4,640 hours flying time with only minor incidents, and she helped found the organization that did this. She became the first woman to fly over the Andes, the longest mountain range in the world, and she became the first woman to fly a plane to Sudan, only allowing her to land required an act of parliament to allow women to land planes there. Today, the organization operates 135 aircraft in 33 countries, flying 5 million nautical miles a year to provide medical aid, disaster relief, and to participate in community development and service to the mission of God and all the earth. And Betty continued to serve as an advocate for that mission until her death in 1997. When a U.S. general pointed at Betty Green in disgust 80 years ago and asked, what are they bringing a girl in to do a man's work? Jesus had a very good answer, and he would show in good time how he had raised up this image bearer of God, this woman of God, this sister of Jesus, queen regent over creation as image bearer along with her brothers, designed alongside men to rule the earth, bought by the blood of the Lamb and empowered by the Holy Spirit. She wasn't doing a man's work, she was doing the Lord's work. And through her, through Betty, God changed the world. Let's pray.